Welcome to Breast Cancer Update for Surgeons. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Kathy Miller, and to begin, she commented on a data set of great significance to surgeons, the so-called Calor study, demonstrating the benefit of post-op chemotherapy in patients with resected local recurrence. The Kalor trial was really a tour de force. And this was a trial that took a long time to enroll patients. And patients and physicians didn't participate in that trial because we were all convinced we knew what to do with these patients who had a local regional recurrence only. The problem is half the world was convinced that they don't benefit from additional systemic therapy, and the other half was convinced that they do. And it really needed a randomized trial to resolve those differences of opinions. Because the opinions were so firmly held, the trial took a long time. It closed without meeting its accrual goal. The counterbalance in closing without meeting its accrual goal is when it takes so much longer to try to get a trial done, you end up with more events and much longer follow-up. So you do statistically recoup some of the power that you had lost by having fewer numbers of patients enrolling. The trial showed a clear improvement in distant disease-free recurrence and in overall survival for the patients who got additional systemic chemotherapy. And I think those results are hard to ignore. Now, this was a trial that asked a conceptual question rather than a specific regimen question. So I think now our questions become more, well, if you're going to give these patients additional systemic therapy, what agents for what duration, how could we best do that? And the Kaler trial doesn't really address that. And in the context of that trial, I don't think they could. Patients came to that trial from all different places. Some of them had had long gaps from when they were initially treated. Some recurred fairly early. They had all different disease phenotypes, and their initial therapy was not in any way standardized. Yeah, I think I really wonder, you know, how often this trial is discussed in tumor boards because I think it's really relevant. Local recurrence is a very common issue. And as you say, there's a real question about what to give and, you know, how to give it. You know, we've been just asking people what they do. You know, I'm not sure how much direct data there are, but, you know, just to sort of think about it a little bit. First of all, I think I've seen a big difference in investigators. I think. I don't know whether you've changed. First of all, are you using what you call systemic therapy after local recurrence now? I definitely am. And did you do it before? I was not routinely doing that before. That's what kind of I was hearing for years, and then all of a sudden this trial came out and now. And then the other thing, as you mentioned, is the issue of which therapy. Now, triple negative is one thing, but once you get ER positivity, HER2 positivity, it starts getting a lot more complicated In general, let's just say, I don't know, making it simple, somebody who hasn't had systemic therapy, are you just kind of using the same thing you would use in an adjuvant situation for a local recurrence in terms of HER2, ER, and chemo? So I'm approaching them exactly the same way I would if this was a second primary in their other breast. That rather than thinking about this as a local recurrence, this is potentially a new cancer still being treated with curative intent, recognizing that previous systemic therapy they had may influence some of my choices. I may not want to give them an anthracycline again. You may have to deal with coexisting neuropathy from previous therapies that might influence your choices. But I give them what I think is going to be my most effective, most reasonable therapy, hopefully with evidence to support its use in a potentially curative setting, essentially as I would if this was a completely new primary. 
So one interesting thought I had about this issue is the idea of using a genomic assay like Ocotype in the local recurrence setting to determine if the tumor is chemosensitive or not. Have you ever considered that? I wouldn't do that routinely. You know, the thought process is not completely illogical, but yet it misses logic for me. So let me give you two scenarios. If this is someone diagnosed quite remotely who has been off endocrine therapy for quite some time, where your question really is, is this a new primary? This disease I am dealing with now has not been exposed to endocrine therapy. Then I think that's quite reasonable. If this is someone who is on endocrine therapy at the time that this local recurrence becomes apparent, I wouldn't find an oncotype helpful or reassuring at all. In the first place, if it is a low-risk score, that person has a low risk of recurrence on endocrine therapy, but her recurrence is not zero, and she just proved to me she did. So I don't know what to do with that low-risk score, and perhaps that's someone with a low-risk score who would benefit from chemotherapy. I simply don't know. So if I don't know how to interpret the results and how to use them to make decisions with a patient, I'm not going to order the test. It'd certainly be hard to gather a whole lot of data on something like this. I guess it's possible. Anything new in terms of genomic assays in specifically the adjuvant setting? You know, it seems they had the St. Galen conference came out and they talked about all the different assays. At San Antonio, there was a paper comparing the results from different types of assays. What are some of the things we've learned? Or, you know, certainly the 21G recurrence score has been incorporated into clinical practice in the United States and many other parts of the world. What have we learned about genomic assays and particularly how others compare to the 21G recurrence score? So I think we've seen that while across the board, the individual genes that are incorporated into their profiles are often quite different. They virtually all include ER. They virtually all include HER2. But beyond that, the individual genes that make up, whether it's 70 genes or 21 genes in your different assays, are quite different. But they all get at the same pathways and the same phenotype. They all include a lot of genes that tell you about proliferation. They all include genes that tell you about invasion and metastasis. They all include some genes that tell you about angiogenesis. And some of them include some immune-related genes as well. There is substantial concordance between quite high and quite low scores when they have been compared. Where you can start to get different results is in the patients where their scores are more in the middle range. And the terminology here gets a little bit difficult because the 21 gene recurrence score defines an intermediate range. Not all of the profiles define an intermediate range. Some of them are analyzed in a binary fashion of just high or low. But even though they're analyzed as high or low, the underlying biology really is a continuum. So where you put up those arbitrary fences, whether you put up one fence or two or three fences, are decisions that we've made. They're not decisions based in the biology. I don't think we have data at this point to be able to say one is better than the other in predicting recurrence or that one is better than the other in helping us identify who ought to get more extensive additional systemic therapy. And that's really what we would need to know. So I still use the 21 gene score. It's the score that allows me to best identify which patients get benefit from chemotherapy and to quantify that benefit 
for those patients. And that's what I want from a score. A score that just tells me about risk just isn't as helpful for me because I need to know what to do that is going to change that risk. We've really seen the colon cancers investigators struggle with this over the last few years because they don't have that kind of data that you're talking about. And I don't know whether we're going to get data in the future from other studies looking at other assays. Right now, the big trials at least caught a lot of our attentions that are out there. There's a couple big ones out there with the 21 gene recurrence score, TaylorX and Rxponder, node negative, node positive. And then there's the MINDEC trial in Europe that uses the MAMAPRINT. Any other trials out there that you're looking forward to? And what do you think we're going to learn from these trials? And where do you think we'll be in 10 years? So those are the big trials that I'm aware of that have sufficient power to really start to address this question. While the TaylorX trial and the RxBunder trial that followed it in node-positive patients are using the 21-gene recurrence score, they have the tissue. So there would be the ability to apply the print score and look at those results. And the same for MINDEC. They are using the print score for the trial designation, but they have the tissues. You could apply the other score or some of the simpler scores, the IHC4 score. You could potentially apply the PAM50 classifier to them. The interpretations are always going to be a little bit challenging because in those trials, decisions were made on the basis of the score that was embedded in the trial. So you won't be able to have exactly a direct comparison. But if each of those trials makes their tissues available for all of the other assays, I think we will be able to start to see, is there one that is better or more accurate in some ways that it ought to become the one that we predominantly use? There are a lot of practical questions that come up with this issue. And Certainly one of the biggest ones is the use of these types of assays or the 21-gene recurrence score in the node-positive situation. You mentioned the Rxponder trial that's looking at this. I imagine it's going to be a while before they have the answer. How do you approach it right now in your own practice? How many nodes will you you know, have be positive? What kind of situations for node-positive do you think about a 21-gene recurrence score? So I and my colleagues at IU have been quite comfortable using the 21-gene recurrence score in patients with at least limited nodal involvement for quite some time since we saw the SWOG data results. Now, there have been a lot of criticisms of that data set. It is admittedly a subset. It is admittedly somewhat limited in numbers. But the results are really absolutely consistent when you looked at the relative improvement or lack of improvement in outcome based on the score. The challenge really for us becomes in those with the intermediate range scores, because as the risk becomes higher, even a smaller relative improvement with chemotherapy might mathematically translate into a small but real benefit and a benefit that would be enough that some patients might really want and accept chemotherapy. Others still might not. So I'm not sure we have a threshold for number of nodes that we will order the assay or not. We certainly don't have a uniform threshold for score that we would recommend chemotherapies. It has become, for those patients who have the two to three positive nodes, a very individualized discussion with the patient about what are the other pathologic features, how strongly ER positive is her tumor, what's the tumor grade, 
What are her thoughts about wanting to do everything possible to minimize her risk of recurrence? Or is she someone who is really more concerned about toxicities of the therapy? And how would we all use that score to either make a decision or sway us in the decision we think we are headed to making without those results? Another issue comes up in terms of patients with node-negative tumors, older patients, for example, where you know people are not as excited about giving chemotherapy, smaller cancers, larger cancers. But I'm curious, you know, a lot of people when they think about these assays think about avoiding chemo, but there is another scenario where the patient's on the road to not getting chemo mm-hmm. and then is found to have a high-risk tumor. And there, theoretically, you're preventing a recurrence, which obviously has huge human impact, even cost impact. How often do you see that happening the other way, where you give chemo that you weren't going to do? Actually, both. So one of the things that we've been concerned about is there seem to be some places in the community where they only order those profiling scores, regardless of which one they tend to prefer. But they only order them when they're uncertain if this patient is going to need chemotherapy or not. And whenever we have tried to look at our ability to predict what the score might be, we're just frankly not real good at it. So if you only order the score when you have uncertainty, that means you are accepting being wrong in a certain number of the patients you treat. And you could be wrong in terms of offering someone chemotherapy that a score might suggest they don't need and wouldn't benefit. You could also be wrong in terms of not offering someone therapy that they might really need and might derive a huge benefit. So for me, where it becomes challenging is trying to figure out where anatomy should trump biology. So to give you an example, Neil, I saw a patient for a, I think I was her third or fourth opinion last week, who was found truly accidentally. She felt a lump. The lump she felt was benign, but on very detailed breast imaging, there was a subtle abnormality behind that lump that would not have been appreciated had they not been taking additional views of that area. That turned out to be a six millimeter invasive ductal carcinoma. It was strongly ERPR positive and HER2 negative. It was sent for the 21 gene recurrence score, and she has a recurrence score of 43. Wow. Yeah. That's the problem. I don't really have a great sense of what to advise her. I could make an argument that, thank God they sent this for this score, because I would have told you you don't need chemotherapy, but this tells us your risk of recurrence with hormones alone is at least a bit higher than we would have predicted, and maybe it is the best thing in the world for you that they sent this score. At some point, I also have to argue, maybe knowing this score for you with such a small tumor size is punishing you for finding this aggressive tumor so small that the size should trump the biology. And we have such little data on patients who have biologically aggressive but anatomically tiny tumors. I don't know where that shift should switch in the other direction. So let's talk about your cases, beginning with your 26-year-old lady. 
So this is a 26-year-old absolutely delightful nursing student at the time I met her. She was just finishing her nursing education, was in the process of studying for her nursing boards, and had just accepted her first job that she was planning on starting after graduation. She has a previous history of being diagnosed with a Ewing sarcoma and treated with anthracycline-based chemotherapy at age 15 and has had no recurrence of her Ewing sarcoma since that time, presented with a palpable breast mass, just over two centimeters by exam and by ultrasound with some associated microcalcifications on imaging. Biopsy found a poorly differentiated invasive ductal carcinoma. Her tumor was ER positive, PR negative, and strongly HER2 positive. Hmm. And being in the medical field, I don't know, was she more knowledgeable about the options? And when was this that this happened? This was about 18 months ago. Okay, so 18 months ago is very different than maybe three months ago. But in terms of thinking through this case, maybe you can talk about what you thought about with her, what you actually did, and then how you would approach it today. So, you know, she brings up a lot of issues. She is a young woman. Besides just starting her professional career, she is engaged. She hopes to have children at some point in the future. She would be open to considering adoption if need be, but she hopes to have biologic children and is interested in preserving her fertility. While she is an independent woman about to start her professional career, she is also a childhood cancer survivor and comes to the clinic with her mother, who's very involved in her care and supporting her. I think in some ways her mother was more distressed by this diagnosis and had more of a kind of foreboding deja vu sense than she did. And she has had previous therapy. She's had previous chemotherapy, previous anthracycline chemotherapy. And that certainly has to have some impacts in her thinking about treatments for her. That would be an issue even if her tumor was HER2 negative. She has not had so significant anthracycline exposure that more anthracyclines would be out of the question. But it certainly would bring increased risk of cardiac toxicity to her. She was interested in breast conservation? She is very interested in breast conservation. And would that have been a problem as she presented with this two-centimeter mass? Borderline. Her tumor is not that big, but she is a very small-framed, thin woman, A-cup breast, and this was a fairly medial lesion. So she certainly could have had a primary lumpectomy, but it probably would have left some disruption of the breast contour. In terms of just the basic issue of in a patient like this, I mean, it sounds a little trickier because of the breast conservation, maybe more inclined to want to shrink it down. But sort of putting that aside, if you see a patient, you happen or a patient gets presented in a tumor board that, you know, you can get involved with who you know has, for example, a HER2 positive lesion and you know, you know, that in general, you're going to want to give, let's say, chemo and, and anti-HER therapy afterwards because of the size, for example, would you rather start out with that neoadjuvantly? I would. So our criteria for giving someone neoadjuvant chemotherapy is very simple. Number one, 
I am convinced that this woman needs chemotherapy as a component of her treatment. So I'm not concerned about potentially over-treating somebody. That primarily comes up with patients with really tiny mammographically detected lesions or those patients whose tumors are strongly ER positive. And ideally, I have a way of evaluating her response. So I occasionally see patients who had an attempted lumpectomy, had positive margins, now they're sent to consider neoadjuvant therapy. That doesn't really make sense to me. At that point, I'm not really going to be able to change their surgical options. I don't have a way of evaluating their response. Those patients, I think, would make more sense to just finish their surgery, and then we'll press on in the usual way. I think in the HER2-positive patients, we are in a weird place right now because of the regulatory approval of pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting. In reality, the reason we give people neoadjuvant therapy is exactly the same as the reason we give people adjuvant therapy. It's not about what happens in the breast. It's about treating microscopic distant metastatic disease that might be there. Could I just put an asterisk on that and say, what about situations like this where you kind of want to shrink it down? Uh, There can be for those patients for whom a decrease in tumor size would change local therapy options. There can be other advantages. But really at its face, the reason to give systemic therapy is not about local control. The reason to give systemic therapy is for treatment of microscopic systemic disease. And that reason and the need for it is the same, whether I'm doing it before surgery or after. But right now in the HER2-positive space, we have strangeness because of regulatory policy. So if you think that pertuzumab would be helpful, would be beneficial in this setting, you have regulatory approval to incorporate pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting. You do not have regulatory approval to incorporate pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting. Now, for somebody who has clinical stage 1 disease or early lymph node negative stage 2 disease, perhaps that's not such a big deal. But if you really think pertuzumab would be helpful, does it make sense that if somebody had a 6-centimeter tumor and clinically positive nodes, if I see them first, I can give them pertuzumab? But if they're seen by a surgeon first who takes them to mastectomy, because the patient says, I want mastectomy anyhow, not interested in preserving the breast, I want mastectomy, this is freaking me out, I want this gone now. If the surgeon bows to that patient's wishes, does her surgery first, I can't give her the same therapy that I would have offered her had I seen her a week earlier. So we're seeing a lot of new trials focused on patients with residual disease at surgery after neoadjuvant treatment. And I know you've been involved with this kind of research. In HER2-positive disease, the NSAVP is looking at TDM1 in that setting. What is TDM1 and what about the study? So TDM1 is trastuzumab, is the T part. The DM1 is the chemotherapy part that has been chemically linked to the trastuzumab. So it essentially uses trastuzumab as a delivery wagon to deliver the chemotherapy to the HER2-positive tumor cells in much higher concentration, very little systemic exposure. And in the metastatic setting, it is both more effective and with less toxicity than other HER2-targeted therapies with plain chemotherapy in patients who've progressed after previous therapy. 
It's being studied in the first-line setting, but we don't have those results yet. Just to clarify, no alopecia, no nausea and vomiting. No alopecia, truly minimal issues with nausea and vomiting, very little issues with myelosuppression, less fatigue, less neuropathy, virtually less of all of the troublesome chemotherapy side effects. And currently, according to ASCO and every investigator we've talked to the last couple of years, TDM1 is standard second-line therapy. Typically, patients will get chemo, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, the Cleopatra kind of approach, first-line metastatic. TDM1, because of this toxicity profile and you know very good effectiveness, so seemingly better than a lot of other HER2 therapies coming in second-line. What about this study looking at TDM1 in people with residual disease after neoadjuvant treatment? So this is a trial coordinated by the NSABP Foundation, recognizing that those patients, particularly those whose tumors are ER negative, who still have residual disease after appropriate neoadjuvant therapy, have a much higher risk of recurrence. We don't have other standard therapies that we know can be helpful, so that has made this a high-risk population and a potentially fruitful population to look at moving therapies into the adjuvant setting sooner. So the NSABP Foundation trial is looking at continuing trastuzumab to complete a total of a year. That would be continuing standard therapy or using TDM1 in those patients as a way of seeing would TDM1 in these patients who were at least somewhat resistant to trastuzumab and chemotherapy could that rescue some of those patients and reduce their risk of recurrence? What about this general trial concept? As I mentioned, I know you've been involved with this, but this strategy of neoadjuvant therapy and then looking at trials, both HER2-positive and HER2-negative, in the residual disease situation, where do you see that heading? So I think that's a trial concept that has significant future. So we've done an initial randomized trial in triple negative patients who have substantial residual disease. ECOG has just recently gotten a NCI Breast Cancer Steering Committee approval to look at the platinums in that setting. So for patients with triple negative disease who have substantial residual disease, that is another group that has quite high risk of recurrence for which we have no additional therapy that is of proven value. So the ECOG trial will look at randomizing patients to platinum or standard of care observation and follow-up. So that trial will be coming and is fully powered to look at disease-free and overall survival. Locally with my colleagues at IU and joined by a few other cancer centers around the country, we're using this as a setting to see if genomically interrogating the patient's tumor and then identifying a specific therapy based on those tumor genomics might also improve outcome. So rather than looking at a specific therapy, we're asking a more conceptual question in that setting. That's interesting. We were talking before about genomic biomarkers such as the 21-gene recurrence score. Where are we right now in identifying patients who will respond to anti-HER2 treatment, particularly patients who respond so well they don't need chemotherapy? So in my opinion, we don't have anything that really allows us to identify those patients, but we should be able to. So in the neoadjuvant trials that included only HER2-targeted therapy, so one arm of the Neosphere trial, Jenny Chang's work in the TBCRC trial, there are a subset of patients who with dual HER2-targeted therapy have a pathologic complete response without any chemotherapy. 
it would be a fabulous advance if we could identify upfront who those patients might be and consider treating them without chemotherapy at all. We just don't simply have a way of doing that at this point. So in that regard, maybe we can move forward in terms of talking about what pertuzumab is, what was seen in the metastatic disease setting, what's seen in the neoadjuvant setting, what that all means to practice. But while you're thinking about that, I just want to ask you what happened with the patient. I'm putting my money on. She got TCH, went into complete remission, and is doing great. Well, you would be partly right. She did have a pathologic complete response, and she is doing great, but she did not receive chemotherapy. Wow. She enrolled in a TBCRC trial known as TBCRC023, which is a trial that follows up Jenny Chang's initial provocative phase two study that used dual HER2 inhibition. In the case of Jenny's trial, it was with the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib. It also incorporated optimal ER inhibition for those tumors that were also ER positive. And in this case, that was with an LHRH agonist for premenopausal patients, then with an aromatase inhibitor. So she was treated with two HER2-targeting agents, two ER-targeting agents. TBCRC023 randomizes patients to either 12 or 24 weeks of neoadjuvant therapy before surgery. She was randomized to the 24-week arm. Her tumor was not palpable after her first three weeks of therapy, not visible on ultrasound after six weeks on therapy, and she had a pathologic complete response at the time of her lumpectomy. That was based on a phase two trial that Jenny Chang had done that found with that combination, 25% of patients had a pathologic complete response, and another 20% or so of patients had almost achieved PCR. They had a few residual cells, but widespread elimination of the tumor with just 12 weeks of therapy. So this trial was really designed to see if 24 weeks might allow more patients to achieve a pathologic CR. Maybe 12 weeks had us just being a little bit too impatient to get these patients to surgery before they had really achieved their maximal benefit. It also was designed to try to look at biomarkers to predict who those PATH-CR patients might be based on initial tumor features. Wow. I mean, actually, it seemed that I remember some of the early work by Jenny Chang where I think she showed some PATH-CRs just from trastuzumab. Yes, but even more with the dual combination. Wow, really an interesting follow-up. So let's get back to the basics. What is pertuzumab? What do we know about in the metastatic setting? So pertuzumab is another monoclonal antibody, just like trastuzumab. It also recognizes the HER2 receptor. The key is it recognizes a different location on the HER2 receptor. You have to recall that for HER2 to be active in signaling, it has to hold hands. It has to form a dimer with either two HER2s or a HER2 and a HER3. And pertuzumab recognizes that binding domain that allows it to form a dimer. Essentially, it blocks the hands, puts a big mitten on the hand so that it can't hold hands and form a dimer and be signaling. It's been effective in combination with chemotherapy on its own, but it's been more effective in combination with trastuzumab, blocking HER2 signaling in those two different ways simultaneously. It was approved in the metastatic setting on the basis of a trial known as the Cleopatra trial that randomized patients receiving their first therapy for metastatic disease to either chemotherapy with trastuzumab and a placebo or chemotherapy with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. That trial, I think no one was terribly surprised to see an improvement in response and progression-free survival. 
what was perhaps surprising was the improvement in overall survival and really a substantial improvement in overall survival in those patients. It's also now approved or at least has accelerated approval in the neoadjuvant setting based on results of two trials, the Neosphere trial and the Trifena trial, both of which found dual inhibition with a combination of pertuzumab and trastuzumab significantly improved pathologic complete response rates compared to those patients who got trastuzumab-based therapy alone. So one other sort of clinker in the Well, there's a couple of clinkers that I can think about in this whole story. One thing I guess we should mention is it seems like you get, and it is a monoclonal antibody, doesn't seem like it adds a lot of toxicity. I'm kind of hard to discern that. Is it your impression it adds any toxicity? It does add some. For most patients, it's minor and not at all prohibitive, but there are a few patients who struggle. The two toxicities that are increased, one is diarrhea, Most patients would say, I don't have diarrhea. I notice I go more frequently. Stools are looser than they had been. But to say I have diarrhea is overstating the difference that I notice. And there are some cutaneous toxicities, some skin rashes. And for the two patients who I've had who really can't tolerate it, it has been because of significant skin toxicity. And, of course, we really don't know how this is going to play out in the adjuvant setting. There is a big adjuvant trial, the Affinity Study, that's looking at this, but we're not going to have that answer. We have these intriguing results in the metastatic setting and the neoadjuvant setting. And lo and behold, the NCCN comes out and actually says, well, that's okay. If you see a patient who's seen the surgeon first, then you would have given neoadjuvant pertuzumab. You can, quote, give it. What did you think about that? There was a lot of reaction to that in the community. It was a pretty bold, I would say unprecedented. I've never seen the NCCN or any consensus group make that kind of recommendation without any data. Well, you know, they have as much data as the FDA did when the FDA gave accelerated approval. The major reason to give neoadjuvant therapy is treatment of systemic disease. It's the same reason that we give adjuvant therapy, it is completely illogical to say, well, I would give you pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, but not in the adjuvant setting. And we shouldn't penalize patients by what might be the luck of whose office they happen to come into first and how up-to-date and knowledgeable about these nuances might that person be. And at least up to this point, There isn't a difference in overall survival for patients who have surgery followed by traditional adjuvant therapy or neoadjuvant therapy followed by surgical resection. So I couldn't criticize a surgeon who has a patient who has disease that is resectable, who says, I want mastectomy, I would rather just get this out and then move on, who then takes that person to the OR. I couldn't say they have done anything wrong. But until this NCCN guidance, or at least their most recent version of the updates, the systemic therapy that that person would receive or would be able to receive is different based on whether she goes to the OR first or not. Have you given pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting outside a trial? In the adjuvant setting, no, because I don't know if it improves disease for your overall surviving in that setting. I suspect that it will. 
but I don't know for certain that it will, and I have not been able to get insurance coverage. You know, the vagaries get even more odd because the neoadjuvant studies gave the therapy only up until the point of surgery because the endpoint of the trial was PATH-CR. After surgery, patients continued standard of care trastuzumab for a total of a year, and in the Neosphere trial, they got additional chemotherapy to complete their standard of care full chemotherapy. In the adjuvant setting, in the affinity adjuvant trial, pertuzumab is given for a total of a year. So you have these differences in therapy based on timing of surgery that have nothing to do with biology, have nothing to do with why we would treat patients, but are driven by this kind of weird and we think intermediate and short-term regulatory status. So you were talking about, you know, you couldn't criticize a surgeon who just takes out a HER2 positive lesion or a lesion in general, but I'd say HER2 in particular. And I'd again go back to what would you like done for yourself? And I'd say I'd like to talk to an oncologist before you take this out because it might affect whether I can get a drug that maybe is something I might want to consider. But well, there's a difference in my preference and what I could really do. Yeah, criticize. no, you're right. I, mean, I, I, I get to criticize people when there is data that says what they have done is wrong and what they've done harms this patient's outcome. And right now, I couldn't say that this situation decreases this patient's chances of being alive. I think it might. My preference would be to see her first and give her neoadjuvant therapy. But I couldn't tell that surgeon that I know taking her to the OR is wrong and decreases her chances of being alive. One final practical question. You know, I know, I don't know, I always feel like surgeons, maybe some of them or a lot of them, you know, hold out a little skepticism about whether oncologists use too much chemo in the adjuvant setting. Do they make people sick unnecessarily, et cetera? I think maybe that's changed a lot since some of the... Gen- we, we definitely do. Well, I think you do a lot less than when, you know, we didn't have we, genomic assays. We, we do less than we used to, but to try to argue that we don't over-treat people in the adjuvant setting would be silly. Absolutely. Uh, of course we do. No doubt about it. But We do because we don't know who they are. Well, it also brings in the downside. And I wanted to ask you about this trial that has been out there for a couple of years. It got reported for the first time in San Antonio from Dana-Farber. It was only 400 patients, one arm. But looking at the combination of just paclitaxel with trastuzumab as opposed to some of the other regimen, the anthracyclines, et cetera, the thing about that that really struck me, I think surgeons should know about, is the toxicity issue and the advantages. I'm curious, first, basically what you thought about the data. I think they only had two recurrences out of 400 people or distant recurrences. You can comment on the data. But I'm particularly interested in your experience and thoughts about how this regimen compares quality life-wise to the other ones we've been using in the past. So we participated in this trial, and it was a very practical trial, and I think a trial that should influence patients' practice or people's practice. It was a trial born out of our confusion in recognizing that most of the original adjuvant trastuzumab trials did not allow patients who had negative lymph nodes. There were some, but if you looked at the total group of patients who enrolled in the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, it was only about 10% or so who were lymph node negative, and they all tended to have larger tumors to get into those studies. So we've had this difficulty of knowing how to advise patients whose tumors were smaller, not in the lymph nodes, 
but were HER2 positive. And that was a group that could have seen six different oncologists and come away with four different treatment recommendations that ran the gamut from maybe you didn't need any systemic therapy, maybe you just needed hormones if your tumor was also ER positive, maybe you needed six months of chemotherapy with some pretty noxious drugs and a full year of trastuzumab. Because that's not a common population, and they're a population that we expect to do quite well, a randomized trial just wasn't feasible. So the best balance was a large phase two experience, large in this case, 400 patients, treated consistently with what seemed like a balanced paired-back chemotherapy. So 12 weeks of low-dose weekly paclitaxel, which causes hair thinning but not always frank alopecia, has very little trouble with nausea, very little trouble with myelosuppression, some peripheral neuropathy, which for most patients is annoying rather than truly limiting or debilitating, some fatigue but less than more extensive regimens, and does not seem to have long-term risk of secondary leukemias or myelodysplastic syndromes, with a year of trastuzumab, which adds some inconvenience for getting the infusions but does not add substantially to the toxicity. And at least that would allow us to tell patients in that situation in the future, treated with this regimen this way, here were the side effects, here were the results. The results were fantastic. You could literally count on one hand the number of patients who had distant recurrence of their breast cancer. One patient, I think it was, had an asymptomatic decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction that then came back up to the normal range. No patients with clinically detectable cardiac issues, no significant issues with neutropenia or neutropedic serious infections. So from both the patient and the oncologist's perspective, a very well-tolerated regimen with amazing efficacy results. So hard to argue that we could do better than that on an efficacy standpoint. So the follow-up study is comparing that as a now standard regimen to TDM1 monotherapy, this idea of perhaps we could deliver the chemotherapy to the tumor cells, keep the efficacy results as amazing as they were, but even further decrease the toxicity that our patients have to experience. So to me, I think it was really awesome in terms of another option that you know seems like it's a lot more tolerable. Hopefully, we can move to a point where people are treated like your patient, 26-year-old patient, without any chemo. I'm not going to let you escape without a little bisphosphonate. We saw, finally, a big Oxford meta-analysis, as promised by Sir Richard Pito, and in this program, I think it was about a year and a half ago, looks like they looked at postmenopausal patients where we'd seen these clues from other trials, concluded there was a modest benefit, and... At least the presenters thought that it was a reasonable consideration outside a trial setting in postmenopausal women. Agree or disagree? And what are you doing in your practice? So I am not swayed that we really have sufficient data to say that all postmenopausal patients need to have a bisphosphonate added to their treatment. Meta-analyses certainly have their power. And it is entirely possible that additional data will prove my skepticism wrong. But it would be nice to have an actual positive trial 
rather than unplanned, unexplained subsets in meta-analysis to guide us. And those drugs are not without their problems and their toxicities. So I haven't incorporated that as standard therapy. But this whole experience has reminded us that the drugs we use in many of our patients has a very deleterious effect on their bone health. I am much more reliable about checking patients' bone density than I was a decade ago, and I have a lower threshold for intervening to try to protect or repair patients' bone health than I did a decade ago. And maybe that has some benefit for their breast cancer recurrence risk as well. So the last thing I want to ask you about is the work that I see you're involved with looking at physical fitness in breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative? So what got us started on this was a research collaborator who politely pointed out how stupid we were. So we had as our first plan to develop an intervention to try to improve fitness, physical activity, improve the health of our breast cancer survivors. So I was working with an exercise physiologist who had done these sort of projects. And when I asked him, you know, what sort of improvement on the basis of these measurements should we look for that would be clinically relevant, his answer was, well, how are your patients starting? Because you need to know where they're starting to know what degree of improvement to shoot for. And when we started looking, we found that there really was no good data on the physical performance of our patients at diagnosis, what happens to them, what's the trajectory of those measurements during treatment. So that was our simple first project, was purely observational. We have just analyzed the first group of data for submission, we hope, to the San Antonio meeting. And it is shocking to the point that it's moved us to tears Many of our patients are much more debilitated at baseline by these measures than you would have expected. They are certainly not patients who I would have thought were at all limited when I first saw them in my clinic. They decline quite precipitously during active therapy at that six-month time point. So just to clarify, though, you're saying they start out? They start out much more debilitated than you would expect. So, But these are people who have just had surgery? No, they've had a biopsy. Wow. So this is really a statement about their underlying general health situation, exercise. These are primarily sedentary older women, I guess. They're not all older. Hmm. Interesting. The age range of the patients in our study at this point goes from their early 30s to, I think, our oldest patient, 69. How debilitated and sedentary they are, we truly would not have recognized. These are not patients who look in distress walking down the hallway, sitting in your exam room. They are not all women who are morbidly obese, though some of the patients in our study would meet that definition of morbid obesity. These are women who are working full-time, but they move as little as they can possibly get away with, and they have very little lean muscle. You know, our patients were on average over 40% body fat at diagnosis, and they lose several kilograms of lean muscle over the first six months. We are just starting to talk about what our first intervention study would be. We knew that many of them would start out debilitated. They're worse than we thought. We knew our therapies would have a negative impact. It is much bigger than we thought. We thought that we might see some spontaneous recovery, at least back to something near previous baseline at that 12-month time point. 
We don't have a lot of patients at 12 months yet, but thus far, spontaneous recovery ain't happening. Almost all of them are worse at 12 months than they were at six months. It has challenged us to think about interventions in a different way. Our data would say if you were designing an intervention that wants patients to work with a trainer two days a week and do 150 minutes of aerobic exercise a week, these women can't start at that point. They will get injured, they'll get frustrated, and they'll quit. So we really think you have to design an intervention that measures where these women are and is able to meet them at their starting point. Just out of curiosity, if somebody hears this and finds it interesting and they want to sort of take a look at their own patients without getting an exercise physiologist involved, is there kind of a simple way you can assess what people's, I don't know, conditioning is relevant to these kinds of parameters? Yeah, have them walk up a flight of stairs and measure their heart rate. Wow, interesting. When we first designed the bike test, the first five minutes is a warm-up. So they're asked to pedal at a cadence of 60 revolutions per minute, easy cadence, and there is no resistance, no load on the bike at all. It is as low as it can go, just the exertion of turning the wheel as a five-minute warm-up. Many of our patients, in fact, the majority of them, are done before they finish the five-minute warm-up. They can't go farther than that. 